writing is so powerful and writing is power. Today, I'm talking with professor and historian, Dr. Emma Perez, about the importance of individuals and communities finding their own voice, voices through writing. During our interview, Dr. Perez explains how and why writing is so powerful and why and how writing has the power to transform individuals and society. Welcome to the Empowerment Zone with Ramona Houston, where we zone in on black and brown relations and our journey to empowering our communities. Dr. Emma Perez is a research social scientist at the Southwest Center and a professor in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Arizona. Dr. Perez is also an author of many publications, including fiction, essays, and a history monograph. Enjoy our conversation and see show notes for more information about Dr. Perez. As always, please subscribe to the Empowerment Zone podcast and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Your support will ensure that we continue our journey in empowerment and impact. Thank you. Enjoy our conversation. Hello, everyone. Here at the Empowerment Zone, we are all about empowerment and impact. Here we center and elevate African-American and Latino voices who are really, their work is really centered on empowerment and impact. And as you know, writing is a significant aspect of empowerment. We must have uh, people in our communities who write and center our stories uh, according to how we experience and view the world. And today we have one of the leading Chicana historians and writers, Dr. Emma Perez here. I'm so excited about her. She's a professor and research social scientist, and she's one of the initial the top what we call the top 100 the first 100 chicanas to get a phd in history and uh, for those of you who listen to the show you know we talked about uh, some of those uh, um, first 100 uh, with one of our recent guests but here dr emma uh, is going to talk to us about the about empowerment and why writing is so important uh, to our histories and to our communities. So welcome, Dr. Uh, Emma. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderfully. Thank you, Dr. Ramona. I'm really honored to be here with you. And I think that your podcast is just so important. I love the fact that you are focusing on um, alliances and, and Black and Latino, Black and Brown, and how we need to, we need to discuss that more. I think, and we need, and I, I really admire that that's what you studied as well when you were at UT Austin. Um, I don't think people focus on that enough. And having grown up in the part of Texas where I grew up, I grew up in a black and brown world, right? And white because of the, it's Southern, it was Southern. So um, anyway, it's just really good to be here. Thank you. Well, welcome to the Empowerment Zone. I'm really excited about uh, having you. And of course, my experience growing up in a small town in Texas uh, with a family, uh, which really um, 
focused on advancing um, Black-Brown relations influenced me to study that. So it is because of my life experience that that I decided to study mm-hmm. research and through my professional work, attempt to bring the African-American and Latino uh, communities together to really address social change. I think we, we would be much more effective if we work together in instead of competing against one another, because we have some of the same, same challenges, right? Absolutely. So yeah. as a fellow Tejana, I'm really curious about how you um, got into writing. Like what, what was your trajectory in becoming a historian? And then even more so deciding to devote your life to writing. Yeah, I... Um... I think growing growing up in small town Texas the way I did, and especially small town southern Texas, uh, was it was really incredibly frustrating and difficult because I think, you know, the racism, the the sexism, the homophobia, all the isms that the classism, poverty. You know, we were pretty poor. Um, I grew up in a pretty pretty poor household. Um, And I think that I was fortunate that my father and my mother, that my father, Mexican man, you know, people always think Mexican men are machista and so traditional, but he was someone who pushed his, his kids for education. And he, he, he himself had a seventh grade education. He was a, he went, he was in World War II and he understood the importance of, of, you know, educating ourselves and moving and that for him was advancement. And he had four daughters, one son and and four daughters. And I think that what happened for me is I was very fortunate because I left Texas in the early 70s and ended up in Los Angeles, where it was much easier for someone like me to get an education. I wasn't able to do it in Texas. I was being basically blocked. And I was taking classes at a junior college and the racism there was just, it was in San San Jacinto, which, you know, they pronounce it San Jacinto Junior College. And it was not pleasant at all. Again, the racism, the classism. Um, So in LA, I, I worked my way up. I had lots of little jobs and uh, worked for a year to get my, to get my, um, residency. And I went to junior colleges. Then I went to Cal State Northridge. Then I transferred over to UCLA and just stayed. And I stayed there thinking I was going to become a lawyer. But um, I had the fortune. I had no idea. None of this. I, I knew nothing about Chicano history, Chicano studies. And I had the fortune of landing in a place that was one of the premier places for Chicano history with my mentor who has now since passed, Juan Gomez Quinones, who trained quite a few people. Mm-hmm. And I just got lucky. There were also, it was also the beginning of, of women's history. You know, there was no, the way we have so many gender women's studies programs now, the way we have so many African-American or black studies programs now, that wasn't the case in the late sixties, early seventies. That's what people were fighting for. Right. So that was my, that was, I came at the tail end of that. And while I was at UCLA, I began to take a lot of classes in women's history and Chicano and later Chicano history. And that's when I realized, oh my God, there's something here. And the first, the only article I read about Mexican women 
was called the Mexican Peon Women of Texas, and it was published in the 1920s. Hmm. And it was so full of, of misinformation that I thought, well, where are the pieces about these people, about my people, about my peeps? And, and I remember talking to my history professor at the time, and, and she said, it's we, there's just not much out there yet. And again, this is late 70s. And I think I, I was going to go to law school. And then at the last minute, I just decided I needed to study history. It was more of a, of a social commitment, a social political commitment to become an historian. My first passion was always writing and creative writing. But I also knew that there were no, there were very few Chicana historians with PhDs. At the time, for me, there were two that I knew of. And that's when I met Dina Gonzalez, Chicana historian, and Antonia Castaneda, Chicana historian. And they were, one was at Berkeley, the other one at Stanford. And we were the ones who started talking about, well, how many of us have PhDs in history? How many of us are grad students? And that's when the list grew, right? That's when we started really talking about, because as far as we know, we were the first handful of, of uh, Chicanas to get our PhDs in history. And so it was social commitment. We did it. We did it because we felt our community needed it. Our stories were not being told. Um, there were many. There were a few Chicano historians, certainly, and they were tell. They were uh, doing a lot of labor history, um, maybe a little bit on women, not as much. So we didn't get to hear as much about about what uh, the experience of the women in our in our communities, right? Our tias, our abuelas, our ancestors, right? So that's that's why I became an historian and and continued to love literature and literary works on the side. Um, so got my PhD and ended up with a really good job at University of Texas in El Paso, West Texas, which is not really Texas. As we were. <laughs> better be careful because there could be some El Pasoans on here and say, "What did you just say?" It's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, it is Texas. It's very New Mexico too. They know that. <laughs> and very Mexican. But um, but I was fortunate. I was there for 14 years and I loved teaching there. Um, we got, I had students from across the border from Juarez. I had students who were indigenous, um, given what the indigeneity there in that region. I had black students who were in the military because of Fort Fort Bliss. I had um and of course, a lot of Chicanos, Chicanex were also who call themselves Mexican-American. And I always respected that. So it was it was just a really exciting time as well. And I was there for 14 years. So I, I finally left to go to CU Boulder, where I was able to teach for the Department of Ethnic Studies. And that's where all of us, you know, it was American Indian Studies with um, what they changed the name to Africana Studies and to indigenous, yeah, indigenous, Africana, um, Asian, and Chicano. And so we're, we were a small department. CU Boulder doesn't do a lot to support um, ethnic studies. And so it was always a battle. It was always a battle to be there. And so when I left, I left willingly to come back here to the Southwest. Um, but the beauty of ethnic studies is that I was able to be more interdisciplinary. And because I was interdisciplinary, I was able to develop um, writing classes that were important, I think, um, 
as we when we write as as academics, often our first generation students come and they haven't developed a voice yet, and they're just astounded with all of the demands on them and and they haven't really been taught how to write first generation students. So I think that was the challenge for me, and that was the beauty of of the classroom with them is that um, I wanted them to express their voice, something that they hadn't been told that they could do. And by expressing their voice, they could talk about their own life experiences, um, how they'd grown up, their parents, their grandparents, of regionalism, where they were from. Um, the football players always followed me around. I loved the the black football players would always came to my classes. And I was like, you guys, what's up? They're like, we don't know. We like your classes. <laughs> so I was really, I was really pleased about that too, because of the way that, um, you know, I learned a lot about how exploited football players are and, and especially the, the black players and the brown players and mostly the black players, right? So um, it's a class that I developed and it's, to, and it, I call it, now I'm calling it Writing Queer Auto Historia, Auto History, right? Which is like a, a, my my good friend, Florian Saldua, who passed away, unfortunately, back in the, um, back in 2004, I believe it was around or 2005, something around there. And she developed that concept, which is a mix genres. And that's what the students come to class with. You know, they've been writing poetry. They know hip hop. They know spoken word. They know, you know, but and then for them to be able to tell their stories was just really freeing for them. And especially when they got to talk about how they grew up and with who they grew up and who was important to them and so I've just, there's a magic that happens and a kind of empowering that happens in that classroom. I just finished teaching it again now, uh, this semester, and the students bond in ways that they wouldn't ordinarily bond because they're sharing their life stories and their life stories are empowering to them, but it's empowering to the rest of the classroom. I mean, there are a lot of tears. I always have to take tissues, a lot of tears are shed, a lot of uh, laughter as well. So it's a really beautiful, magical way of of them finding their voices and, and sharing with each other. I just have a lot of faith in what that class has become. And it's it's also, you know, it, it helps me too, because then I'm able to focus on now that I've written a lot of the history stuff that I needed to, I, I focus, I'm mostly writing um I'm mostly writing fiction. I just sent off a dystopic novel that I am going to get published with Arte Publico Press. I sent it off yesterday and the, it should be ready in the galleys. But that is about brown and black and indigenous and the manner in which these people, it's dystopia. So the manner in which these people are being held in detention camps and um, and queerness is important. Queerness and transness is important too. So it's, they're gender shifters, right? And so they're being there. There's all of this extreme uh, racism and and severe uh, homophobia that's happening, as well as the the poverty. So I felt like that novel had to be written because of um, the times we're living in. The time, although that the germ for it came to me when actually in 1980 when Ronald Reagan was elected, because everything started to turn around. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think so much anti-affirmative action 
began mm-hmm. to happen right at that moment in 1980. And I don't know about your experience, but I suppose you probably ran into this, that no matter how good we are in these institutions, um, and it's something I interrogate in that novel too, is that no matter how good we are, we're still considered the affirmative action higher, right? Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, I've been doing this for over 40 years and still, it still comes up. Not here. It hasn't come up here. I'm in the Southwest Center with these old white guys who I love. They get it. They speak Spanish. They're just, you know, they're, they really try. Um, They know about indigeneity. That's their research. So it's a, it's a good place to be as opposed to a place like Sea Boulder, where there wasn't a lot of respect for, um, you know, one of my one of my colleagues was this this one of the first black men who was at that institution, and he had stories. Bill had stories about how hard it was for him just walking down the street as a black man in Boulder, Colorado. So um, I had tremendous respect for him. I always considered him a really wonderful mentor. And he, I remember when he retired, so it was a massive party. <laughs> um, but I. Um, yeah, I um, writing. I think writing. I mean, what is it that Toni Morrison? I'm always quoting Toni Morrison because it doesn't get better than Toni Morrison. Most writers do. It just doesn't get better than Toni Morrison. I mean, sure, Virginia. I mean, I love Virginia Woolf. I love Garcia Marquez. I love Faulkner. But Toni Morrison took us to a whole other level. But one of the things that she said that resonated so much for me is, I wrote the book I wanted to read. Mm-hmm. So um, I had not, there were no, I think in, it must have been in this both 70s and 80s when I arrived in LA and I wanted to read queer Chicana, you know, Latinx or Black women who were writing you know, of their own story. And I, there was very little back then. It's my students now were shocked when I tell them, look, there were like three or four books. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now there's a big, massive literature, which is why there's pushback. We know why there's pushback because we're growing, right? And and as lo- as soon as people start having voices, I mean, we saw it in the '60s and '70s. Yeah. Look at what happened to the Black Panthers. Yeah. Look at Angela Davis, who is a tremendous, tremendous human being. My God, that um, as soon as people start voicing and acknowledging, look, we're transforming our society, we're transforming our communities, this is exploitative, then that is when, that is when people start pressing down. And and this is what's happened far more with the queer and trans community now in the, in the 21st century. So, but back then there were so few books. So I wrote, I think it was probably the first Chicana lesbian novel. There's two, when people debate whether it was mine or someone else's, but Certainly, it was one of the first two Chicana lesbian novels. And just from there, I continued writing. When I wrote my Western, historic, probably the only Chicana lesbian Western on the shelves, I think. But again, it was the book I wanted to read because there's so many, being from the part of Texas I'm from, we hear a lot about the Texas Rangers, right? And the Texas Rangers lynched Black people and Brown people. And... um I wanted to tell the other side of that story. I wanted to talk about, and especially in the region where I grew up, but if we talk about, I mean, Austin, for example, right around there, there's a there's a, a an area, a county called Gomal County. Gomal County was a slave county. 
right? This is where the east the the southerners would bring and they'd have one or two slaves but they'd go to this this is one of the regions where they would locate so i wanted to talk about that story what was it like when you had black people who were enslaved when you had brown people who were starting to lose their land when you had indigenous people who were being massacred because they wanted they were you know the people wanted both mexicans and the Anglos wanted their land. So then that complicates it as well. So I had to discuss all of that. So I um, I had, it was torture writing it. It took at least 10 years, but I wrote it because again, I wanted to highlight a queer, Tejana um, is the protagonist. And then of course she falls in love with a black indigenous woman. So then it's also about their relationship and how difficult it is on, on the frontier in the 1830s, right? in the 1830s. But I think, I just don't think the 19th century is that far away. <laughs> still living, you know? Exactly. We're still living the so much that we inherited from the 19th century. And this is why I tell my students too, look, yes, read blogs, read everything, but read history, read history. Don't be afraid to go into the documents and the archive and, and to see that there is there there was a different way of being, but then there's so much that we still live with. I mean, when you think about the things that, for example, Senator Calhoun from South Carolina, what did he say about Mexicans that we we stole this land from them fair and square? I don't know if he said that specifically, but he did say there's no way that Mexicans are ever going to take over. So yeah, we can take, and, and yet later in the 1920s, you read a lot of the eugenicists saying, oh, we can't let these people in because they're changing the look of this country. And, you know, and so much of it goes goes along with what, what was happening in the South with, with slaves and Black people and rights, you know, and, and the, the amendments that reconstruction that took away so much, reconstruction in the, in the 1870s that took away so much of the of what was being gained in the 60s, right? So here we are, we keep repeating these things in different ways, but and yet still it's the same ideology with people's fear, mm -hmm. so much fear of difference, so much fear of blackness and brownness and indigeneity. And it's and it's it's gotta change. And we're not going anywhere. That's the thing. We're not. Nope, we're not going anywhere. We're <laughs> we were here. here when the U.S., even before the U.S. was found, yes. right? Yes, And absolutely. we're going to be here until the end. Mm -hmm. So congratulations on uh, submitting your novel yesterday. Was, uh, Thank you. That, that's a big, uh, big accomplishment, along with all the other writings that you have um, made, both fiction and nonfiction. So... You know, you talk about writing and, and helping your mm -hmm. students to find their voices and mm -hmm. how um, writing is transformative, right? It transforms society. So why do you think writing is so empowering? What is it about writing that is empowering to the self and mm -hmm. empowering to our communities and to mm -hmm. create transformative change? Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that um, I'm going to quote Toni Morrison again, because Toni Morrison says that books are a form of of political action. 
right? Books are a form of political action. Books change your mind, right? Books are knowledge. Books are reflection. And I think that um, <clears throat> all of that is true. And books are healing. Writing is healing. And when we heal ourselves, we heal our communities because we tra we ourselves transform, are making a commitment to transform when we're when we begin to heal and we ourselves develop a sense of compassion. I mean, I think compassion is vital, and it happens in the classroom for when I have students sharing their life stories because they have they develop so much compassion for each other across cultures across race across genders and it um it he it, i think it can heal the world if people are willing it's about a willingness to be vulnerable and i always say to them look if you're going to be in this class and you just want to impress us that's not going to work if you're willing to be vulnerable then you belong here because when you're vulnerable, the best stuff comes out. And that's the stuff that's a, that's the magic that will lead us to healing each other, healing yourself and healing each other. And for me, it is. It, it's, a, it's about healing and it's about social change because you can change people's minds with writing and with words. You know, we change people's minds with words too. I mean, people who say, oh, well, what about the action? Well, words are action. That's why we've got to be so careful with kind of words we use because they are action. So, um, so yeah, it's just incredibly empowering in so many ways to do, to do writing. I mean, to have someone, wasn't it just really amazing when Toni Morrison won the Nobel Prize? I mean, I was just... And the Pulitzer before then. Mm -hmm. it, it just to see <clears throat> that kind of representation, this powerful, incredibly talented, hardworking Black woman get the Nobel. And I thought, finally, finally, someone that we can all respect so much. And she was still dismissed by the establishment that just, and we're talking, really? Really? You're going to be critical of Toni Morrison? No, shut shut up. <laughs> just shut up. <laughs> Go read your Shakespeare then, if that's and just leave us alone. <laughs> but if you're not going to learn from this, if you're not going to learn from a book like Beloved, then you're not being willing or present or learning from the past, right? I mean, Beloved is just, I remember watching interviews of her talk about. I mean, I've studied Beloved so much, but I when she talked about the writing of Beloved and how hard it was because of the research she had to do and some of the research that that was about, she had a specific, she even showed it, the bit that would be put in men's mouths. Mm -hmm. That was so painful for them. So they couldn't speak mm -hmm. to make them mute. And that's just, you know, one of the things. I mean, when she talks about the, the, the way she makes the back of the, the man who has been um, beaten so much. And it looks like this tree, a cherry tree. Mm -hmm. I mean, who can do that? Who can do beauty and that kind and, and show that kind of historical trauma at once? I mean, it just, and to get us to have so much compassion that it makes us cry. And then we, we want things to be different. Mm -hmm. That's the power of, of a writer like that, you know? So yeah, I try to get, and my students do, they, they, 
they start to get it. I mean, they bond with each other in ways that I don't think they'd necessarily would have had they not been doing their own life writing. So Dr. Emma, uh, you being a college professor, I know you are a big advocate for college success. And you talked uh, about your father influencing you uh, to go to college as well as your siblings. So there are a lot of people out there who are first generation and some of us who are second, third, fourth generation, but still want to know how, mm -hmm. to, what do they need to do to succeed in college? So could you tell us what college colleges did you attend, mm -hmm. your degrees and major, and what strategies would you give students to ensure that they're successful in college? Okay. Well, I attended junior colleges first. Um, one in Texas and then one in, um, in LA. And then I transferred to Cal State Northridge, which is a state college. And then finally, I ended up at UCLA and received all of my degrees there, BA, MA, and, and PhD. And I, um, what saved me, what helped me were other, um, was building community building community with people who were like me. And that definitely happened when I arrived at UCLA because it was a really, it was 1976 when I arrived at UCLA. So there was still a lot of marching and protesting going on and, and people wanting, um, people wanting to change things still still in the 1970s. I think that was when Baki, the case of Baki, which was the anti-affirmative action case came up. And so we were marching with the law school against that um, to show people, look, we're still gonna be here. So I think for one of the things I that I notice even with my students now is how important it is for them to have each other. And I think had I not had the other Chicana historians, I don't think I'd be where I am today because they were the ones I was able to complain to, to vent to, to share my writing with. And that continues to this day. I mean, I still, I just saw Dina over the weekend in, in Albuquerque. We're still, after 40 years, we're still close friends and we still talk about, you know, our work and our writing. So I really believe students need to just not isolate, make sure they don't isolate, make sure that they connect with each other and share with each other and not fall into thinking that they're the worst student there because it's easy to do. Everybody's thinking that, well, except maybe some of them, <laughs> narcissistic wealthy kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for that great advice. You must build community while you're in college because the the your colleagues that you connect will, will, with will be so helpful as you matric matriculate Absolutely. through uh, your educational experience. Thank you so much for that great advice. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. A special thank you to the incredible team of the Empowerment Zone. Terry Ann Gully, theme song, NADWorks, digital support, and of course, our featured guest, 